Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. In case you're joining us here for the first time, I guess I should point out that for the past few weeks I've been playing some recordings that were made at the Esalen Institute in the fall of 1989 and again in 1990. The tapes of these conversations, uh, which the participants called a trialogue, were loaned to me by Ralph Abraham, who was one of the participants in these discussions, the other two being Terence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake. So far, we've heard them talk about topics that run the gamut from creativity and chaos to imagination, the world soul, and entities from other dimensions. Today, we're going to hear the second side of the eighth tape in the series, which is titled The Resecularization of the World. And we'll pick up where Ralph Abraham was discussing the fact that organized religions should acknowledge the validity of the so-called pagan forms of worship that had preceded them. I think convergent evolution is a gentler way to go. I think um, that there's uh, a real gap, a conflict between these two different strategies of starting a new system based on the archaic revival or pagan revival on the one hand and um, revolution of the churches, resacralization by religion on the other hand. And that has to do with a traditional church practice of uh, denying the validity of previous forms, uh, archaic pagan forms, and uh, particularly carried to the point <clears throat> of revising history, I mean pulverizing goddess figurines and statues and, and so on. What would be necessary besides uh, partnership of the genders, local control, a green politic and so on within the ritual of the church would be an acknowledgement of the validity of the essential religiosity of the pagan forms, including the the goddess, the worship of idols, and so on. And And that means that the Bible might have to be, here it is, abandoned. The Bible might have to be abandoned as a sacred document of the church. No, reinterpreted. Reinterpreted. That's a process that goes on continually, and the whole development of, of the Christian religion, like any other, depends on a series of reinterpretations of traditional texts. So, the, the, the reinterpretation that's going on right now is through the process theologians an attempt to develop the idea of an evolutionary God, of an evolutionary universe. That's one major strand of theological reinterpretation. And they have a very strong case because the God of the Old Testament is not a platonic, transcendent God outside history. He's a thoroughly hands-on, interactive God who's, who's present in, within history, even arranging details like the passage through the Red Sea. You know, this is this is a this is an interactive process. It's a, an ongoing providence that's uh, guiding the historical process. That's the Jewish conception of God, a kind of process God. They would say, and I think they're right, that this is in fact the true Judeo-Christian conception. So, a process evolutionary model is one revolution going on in theology. Another is um, the recovery of the feminine and and. Uh, uh, a recovery of the tradition of the Shekinah, the feminine presence of God. Sophia, the holy wisdom, is the feminine uh, wisdom principle, which is the, uh, it could fulfill many of the roles of the world soul, which is feminine. Um, and the, uh, a revival of that whole tradition, these revolutions are actually occurring in theology right now. Well, is there a tradition of Old Testament scholarship that can reinterpret stories about David and Melchizedek or Jericho, I mean, all these... Uh oh, well, they're all being reinterpreted all the time. Uh-huh. Melchizedek is, according to Father Beads of reinterpretation of it, the, the figure of the cosmic priest, who represents the, the priesthood of the cosmic religion, which is the root of all religion. And that's the religion which links us to the future of the cosmos, to the earth and to the heavens, and to the, the cosmic revelation. And this is also implicit in the Old Testament, you see, because Noah, who is saved by God after this catastrophe, 
is given the promise the rainbow, and the rainbow is the sign of the cosmic covenant between God and Noah. But Noah isn't a Jew. He's the only man and woman, his family's the only family that survives the flood, and he's like the new Adam, he's the father of all humanity, of all races. It's only much later that we get to Abraham and the founding father of the Jews. So Noah is a generic father of humanity, and um, so there's a cosmic covenant of Noah, which is the basis of all cosmic religion, and one can trace that in, in the Bible. So it's not impossible, and in fact it's already being done, to reinterpret the Bible. It's always being reinterpreted. So one place would be getting rid of it, the other would be reinterpreting it, but the route that will be followed within the organic development of religion is reinterpretation. So what's going on then is that um, basis of optimism about the future of our civilization? Well, I think it's going on. I think it's going on to some extent. I think it needs to go on a great deal more. And you see, I think that the if one's going to have a syncretism, one has to have things that can grow together. And the, there's no way in which uh, a more priestess-based feminist element could grow together with this tradition than if it came into being. I mean, it has to yes. come into being. And if the thing that can raise people to the barricades of this jihad, this green crusade, is the, the, the flag of Gaia, I mean, it's, that seems to be the unifying banner of yes. the present movement. It's the goddess, Gaia. It's the Great Mother. And as soon as you mention that it's the Great Mother, a lot of people start going off the idea, which is why um, the Gaia hypothesis is preferred by many of its proponents to be veiled in the obscurity of an antique tongue um, as Gaia, rather than Mother Earth. Because Mother Earth reminds people of mothers, and then of their own mother. And it tends, uh, tends to press buttons which many people would rather not have pressed when thinking about such abstract issues as the future of humanity on the globe. <laughs> but that's the trouble with these metaphors, or the strength of them, that they do connect you with these concrete realities of experience. Anyway, if there were to be a, a true Mother Earth religion developed, it would obviously be, have priestesses rather than priests, yes. because its central figure is a goddess. It would be relating human life to the Earth, first and foremost. And it would tend to, then, you know, our bodies return to the Earth. It would get into the whole material cycles. It wouldn't have much emphasis on the stars or the heavens. Um, and I think it would be very claustrophobic for a lot of people before very long. And people who want a religion that also brought in the aspirations of the stars, the heavens, the greatness of the cosmos, the space of, of, of the heavens. Then you'd have the choice of religious things. Is, this God, is there a god of the heavens? Or is there a goddess of the heavens? Well, in ancient Egypt, there was a goddess of the heavens who arched over the body of the earth. And Christianity, in response to that particular question, offers one a choice of either. Because God the Father is the Father in heaven, is traditionally the sky god. He's the sky god figure. But also, um, Our Lady is Queen of Heaven, having taken on the, 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 the um, connotations of Astarte and, and the sky goddesses of the Near East. And her robe, of course, is blue in colour, coloured with stars. So she's, in a sense, the 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 the, the soul of the world. The anima mundi. She's the anima mundi, or the soul of the world. So, so these are different models. Uh, you know, there are different models on the market, as it were, already within the tradition. But if this anima mundi thing got going, this is not a fine tuning of Christianity. This is, at last, the overthrow of it. Uh, it's hard to paint. Let's call it a revolution. Yes, a revolution, an absolute, uh, no more this uh, patriarchal, masculine dominator thing that has descended down through monotheism. I mean, it would be the pluribalities. Well, I think it would, the, the, in the Middle Ages, in fact, the Anamandi was a widely known concept. It almost like broke out, yeah. but then it was But it was compatible with the form of the Christian church they had at that time. The Aristotelian view of nature was entirely animistic. The Middle Ages had a form of animistic Christianity. But they exterminated all this. No, they did. their church didn't exterminate it. The Protestant Reformation tried to exterminate it, and the scientific revolution carried that process further. But here's where you have to distinguish very sharply between the Protestant tradition and the Catholic tradition. True. Well, we've done a good work here. We've dreamed a dream. We've visioned 
a revolution of religion in which there would be priests and priestesses and the acceptance of psychedelics as a sacrament among some and local con control and uh, renewal of meaning in rites and rituals and so on. Unfortunately, we've still got the uh, continual decrease of attendance in these churches and the fact that the revival might already be underway with the reinterpretation of the Bible and so on is going to be of no great use unless, as a matter of fact, it becomes attractive, which I think it's not. There's somehow a, a pretty strong habit of revulsion at churches, of, of hatred for, for churches and all the, uh, the sins of the church um, over these past centuries. Plus, there's the competition of scientism as a new mythology, which is totally disjoint from the church and which has so much, uh, so many errors built into it as far as sensitivity to planet and all the Gaia and green concerns, that the syncretism of the revived church with science would not be possible without destroying the revived church. So somehow, this uh, competitor so attractive because of the strength of his weapons and so on. The, uh, the mythology of scientism, this would have to be dealt with, or other factors, whatever they are, which disincline people to be attracted to church, which makes church repeller for them, whether revised or not. What could be done in the way of education, media, what, what could be done to reverse this? So you see the reason for the lack of attraction to the church is the presence of an alternative attractor, as it were, namely the worldview of scientism. Well, we read Which is rather like the person, one of the big pluses of scientism emotionally for people is, which I had, since I was a convert to scientism at about age 14, I know very well, is that a bit like you, I mean, one can look around and everybody else is praying or appearing to pray, but one can somehow see from a higher point of view, because from the point of view of scientism, all this is just superstition. We've risen, man has risen beyond it through the advance of science and technology, and we're superior to the whole of religion, which is infantile and part of the past. And this is part of the worldview of scientism, and I agree that, um, you know, religious revival depends on um, a, a collapse of faith in scientism, but I think that collapse of faith is happening all around us. Old-style humanists, secular humanists, you know, the campaigning atheist types, uh, you know, a thing of the past. I mean, there's still a few of the older ones around, and in America you still find them. But you don't find them much in England, because there's like, no longer much to fight against. You know, it's not as if society is totally strangled by the power of the church. That's very far from being the case. It's dominated far more by banks, financial institutions, military complexes. Um, in marginal areas, it may be affected by the church, but for all intents and purposes, it's free of its control. Um, so, scientism is, 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 I think, losing its impetus. It's, there's a widespread public disillusionment with science, which is reflected in cuts in funding for scientific research and closing of science institutions, which is actually happening. But this just leaves people stranded, having rejected the church in favor of science and having re rejected science in favor of nothing. It leaves us with the dilemma of today. Well, now, that leaves the void into which... Uh, why not psychedelicize and sacralize green politics, which otherwise is in the hands of a very boring bunch of materialist, breast-beating, neo-Marxist... A clever conspiracy uh, between green politics and a revived church. Well, or, I mean, I would say that... It, Science and green politics can be sacralized uh, through the psychedelic experience. Rupert's example of seeing everyone bowed with their head in prayer and from the point of view of scientism knowing that this is all superstition, but the next level up is the psychedelic person who knows that the scientist is missing the people bowed in prayer is a poor fool. And so it's... <laughs> I think that green politics, that what makes it so wishy-washy is its lack of a forthright uh, metaphysic and that they are, they insist that they're rationalists, reformed socialists, 
saw the light Marxists and all this other stuff. And none of that is good enough to inspire anybody. But a Green Party that used a mystical language, a psychedelic language, a language of integration and control and emotion and all this, would have, I think, a tremendous appeal. That's why what that's why Rupert is so keen for this ayahuasca cult coming out of Brazil, because on one level it's simply a, a preserve the rainforest, help out little people, your typical bleeding heart rap. But on another level, it's a psychedelic religion that makes claims on the imagination, the heart, the soul. And here's an attractive partnership. Green plus psychedelic. How about the Eleusinian mysteries celebrated in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine? Something yes, that plant scale. psychedelic. It has to be yes. understood that, it's the, that this is the way to the guy in mind, that these things are sacraments, not metaphors for sacraments, real sacraments, and that their efficaciousness can have political consequences if, it is, if the two forces are brought together right. Oh, it's all going to, everybody's going to try and outgreen everybody else. The trick will be to tell the weasels from everybody else. No, but they very well might um, outgreen each other in, within the current context of desacralization, uh, resulting in only a slight extension of time. You see that all of the, I mean, it's a huge system. And... Um, Green is, is, is not enough, you know, to recycle the plastic bottles. It's not enough to stop cutting down the Amazon jungle. It only earns a, a slight extension in the time available to evolve a better strategy for all the rest, the root, the population explosion, for example, this the is exhaustion of the energy resources. This is what will give force to the call for fanatical vigilance. It really is a thing that uh, is ready-made for fanaticism because, you know, people well, used to say if, good. if, God, is, if God is on your side, what fears do you need to do? Well, if what your mission is is to save the earth, it's very hard to see how you're going to negotiate compromises with people who don't want to save the earth. Well, the answer is you have a range of people like you have in the environmental movement. You have earth firsters who are prepared to go furthest. They're the kind of radical terrorists. The and then you have other groups like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, which has now become more moderate, right. you know, prepared to negotiate with the powers that be. But it's the extremists who set the agenda. And then you can end, the others can only moderate. <laughs> it's in the wake. Yes, the others can only moderate in the wake. And I think that's the right-wing think tanks in Britain and America have shown us in the last 10 years how a few group of people, a few people thinking out extreme policy options, or as they call them, you know, future scenarios. Just uh, 20, 30 people think out these sort of programs like privatizing things and so on. And then they set the agenda. Then there's sort of more moderate institutes that when the debates and the being stirred up and the whole attention of the debate has shifted over in that direction, through creating that as an option, the debate, then a more moderate institute works out the details and they get it. Achieved. Well, this is classical revolutionary theory. If 30 people were willing to wage unconditional warfare against anyone who opposed saving the earth, headlines would follow, huge debate in the media, the immediate softened position directly behind them, the further softened position, yeah. everybody would have to be heard from. Like these people who, who blow up uh, lumber trucks and uh, dynamite railroads that are used to bring the wood out of the forest. I mean, this is all... Theater, well, basically, this sounds uh, splendidly optimistic. Uh, the bad news is good news. The magnitude of the problem guarantees a response. The response will probably succeed. The successful Green Party will automatically negotiate a new partnership with the reinterpreted church. Uh, but uh, frankly, I just can't imagine a holy war resulting in a peaceful partnership society? Well, I, 
I think that this is a very desperate situation. The hope would be that faced with the possibility of a holy war, they would just abdicate. And the existing institutions would say, all right, we'll save the earth already. Rather than being hung, we'll save the earth. Sorry we didn't move faster, didn't quite understand what you were signaling. Now we've got it. Now we'll save the earth. By threatening them with chaos, absolute turmoil. But anyway, this green movement, if it's to be effective as a political movement, must have a spiritual and a mystical dimension. And I think that's where the question comes in of how would it acquire one without either allying itself to a a green, uh, green form of Christianity or Judaism or without inventing its own kind of priestess or priesthood and carrying out its own rituals. Now, frankly, I don't see the latter happening. I can't imagine the well, green politicians in Germany and Britain. is the obvious alternative. Well, I think there's a because it's an time scale problem because the the crisis is is coming coming upon us with the speed of a tidal wave. I think that in the long run, it will be uh, it'll be compared to the deluge. It's the the the, the flood, and we're. Um, the, the abdication of the great institutions of society from their present position and the rate at which they can jump onto the green bandwagon is quite fast compared to the time it will take to revitalize the church, to reinterpret the Bible, to obtain new sacred music, to institutionalize a priest and priestesshood of uh, psychedelic exploration and so on. And that people had really better get moving, I think, in the uh, revitalized church movement if they want to be on the bandwagon at all. Well, there are probably, if it's to be a psychedelicized green movement, the people who could lead it have been training themselves for years. They just didn't understand that's what they were training themselves for. But called upon to do so, they could step forward and operate in those positions. But I think your idea of an order within, you know, you had this model of the Franciscans and so yes. on. What it would be, the best model would be one of the, like the Franciscan order. Yes, which the would be a kind of autonomous local chapters loosely affiliated with the church, not in opposition to it, working loosely within it and therefore being able to affect the whole network of it. And uh, so a priesthood of greens, especially the psychedelic committee, would yes. uh, keep track. The of psychedelic order. The uh-huh. psychedelic order or a green order. Uh-huh. It would be a green order. And um, be, I think it would be very interesting to see what happened. I think it would have to have an ecumenical quality. In other words, I think it would have to be linked up to a green order of Judaism because I think yeah. they'd have to work closely together. If, if this movement's to work, it's to be one where the Judaic tradition uh, which call, uh, and the Christian ones developed together, I think, in this process in the West. Because I don't think that it would work otherwise. Because so many influential people in Western society are Jewish. And if they're always going to be pulled towards the sort of old-style Zionist view of Israel and stuff as, as the sort of ultimate in world politics, um, it's not going to be very helpful. And so yeah. to, to come so, into this broader vision. I think there'd have to be green Christian and Jewish movements at different orders. Yes, different orders, but there need to be uh, green um, mystical orders associated with every religion that among themselves would have no discrepancy as to their view, right. based as it is upon this um, pure channel. Right. Mm. And therefore that would serve as a kind of neural network connecting up into a new unity, all of these presently very diverse systems. That's right. The big green orders of Islam, green orders of yes. Hinduism. And the, the green orders of Neo Sufi and Neo That's right. And the green order in America would, would have as one of its roles the reconnection with the sacred places of America and their re honouring and appropriate ceremonies. And the Green Order in England would have its role yeah. connecting with the sacred places. And, you know, and it would obviously so rather than a Green Party, a Green Order party is too much. The party has already man. happened. Well, the party is already there, good. but there should be but a Green Order. is missing. And now, where I think we're summarizing our discussion into an actual proposal for for a way that some of these goals could be obtained in, in a reasonable time, and that is through the. Uh, 
establishment of a, a neural network, intercommunicating orders of uh, associated to the same sacrament all over the mm. planet. Uh -huh. The um, the entire promise of the intellect has failed us. If it's necessary for the catastrophe to actually be upon us before people will act, and yet that seems to be the case about the nuclear power, for example, there's a small number of people who will stand up at the barricades and so on, but the majority of people will will still continue to buy nuclear power. And it's really too late um, to wait until the tidal wave crashes on the shore. There, there will be no response. No, well, we and have for to a lot of things, it's already too late. The death of species, or 30% of the species, and so on, I mean, these, the, not the numbers, the state of advance of the death of the biosphere is already so great that the jihad would be upon us if people were able to understand what they read and to project what that means and to respond with their heart. So what they need are people and organizations which give permission to do that and then their anger will rise. They won't have to be told what to do. They will know what to do if you just connect it up for them. They'll be furious. Well, I think that part of the problem is the denial of the problem. And part of the denial is the, corrupt, the corruption of the news media in not reporting the news. Well, and the corruption of science on one level. I mean, for instance, this whole greenhouse thing. They've been hemming and hawing for 15 years, saying, yes, we now do detect, and it is true. It's no longer about colder, warmer. It's happening. We're aboard. We're taking this out of the hands of the mystics and the chicken littles and saying, yes, we, hard-headed university scientists, we agree. Well, just as the organized religion needs revolution and reinterpretation, science also needs revolution and, and reinterpretation. And the Gaia hypothesis and its accompanying revolution in the sciences has forced scientists of different specialties to speak with each other who had never spoken with each other before. And that is um, a major restructuring of science, giving it the capacity for the first time to actually appreciate that there was a greenhouse effect. Well, science for the first time has the capacity to measure its own impact on the world. I mean, the nuclear winter studies plus uh, the uh, CFC problem plus the CO2 problem, it's science. That, is, that created these problems yes. and that now reveals their magnitude as they bear down upon us. Mm -hmm. So the accommodation of scientific view of history, archaeology, and so on in the church has to be matched by an equal resacralization of science, or I could say sacralization of science. Yes, was, right. never had this connection in, in the past. That might be an essential connection in order for us to have a future. Yes, the purpose of science should be the Greek purpose to understand nature, not to not for technique. That all came later. I, we need to hold back from applications. That's the problem. I mean, let's just assimilate what we know at this level. Try and save the earth, but not push deeper into application because that is rape. That is this violation thing where, you know, Taoists don't do it that way. They just are content to know how it works. Well, all right, the catastrophe is coming. The revitalization of the church and the revision of science are already underway, and maybe in order to actually nucleate the social transformation that's implied and which will inevitably result if we're lucky, it requires a certain nucleation site, a model first exemplar a of this coalition. And that might take place somewhere, maybe in England, in Holland or someone, I would guess, probably not in the United States. And then from this model to spread outward in the rapid diffusion amplified by the media and so on. Yes, a green party, a so psychedelic. Maybe we should be working on this model system in some particular time and place. 
Well, well I think one local way in which it could be a in which it might happen or could happen is in the, in the northwest of the United States where there are in place quite large numbers of people who've already ritualized mushroom cults and there's, a, there's an ongoing ritualized mushroom cult there which is a psychedelically um, motivated influenced by American Indian chants and American Indian practices is, uh, involves an awareness of, in some cases, at least the American Indian versions of the four directions and the basic principles of localization in sacred space, yet which is disconnected from churches, as far as I know, and which is not integrated into the green political movement. But there's a sense in which ingredients exist just to take where we are now, I mean, the American West. Ingredients exist, I think, for such a syncretic movement to happen. I think influences direct experience of the um, these ayahuasca churches from the Amazon could help to nucleate the synthesis. The syncretism that hasn't really happened is the formation of the, the integration of these orders with the Christian world, partly yes. because of a, a deep suspicion on both sides and um, a kind of stereotyped anti-Christian view that people have developed in some kind of reaction against their Christian or Jewish background many, many years before and have very rarely ever re-examined and it's a, an impenetrable barrier they erect against their ancestors and the entire tradition they've come from and try to function somehow keeping it all out but it doesn't because it comes around the archetypes work unconsciously um, and so one gets uh, I've met um, members of the mushroom cult who come across to me very much like uh, Southern Baptist evangelists for it and uh, on inquiry I find their backgrounds are Southern Baptist Anyway, there's, there's, this is one area where some of the ingredients, namely green politics, mm -hmm. the existence of such cults and an attempt to reintegrate them with the Judaic and Christian traditions is going on. So there's, uh, there's a sense in which um, this is one area where such a syncretism could emerge. Now in England, one would first have to establish the mushroom cults, and there are lots of people who take the native Sinusaibi mushrooms and the people who gather them, but I don't know whether they've developed into sort of circles, because the mushroom thing here developed, I suppose, under the influence of peyote circles, and living traditions of sacramental use of plants, and these living traditions are living in America, but I don't think there are any continuous living ones in Europe. Well, the inner order of the proposed church could grow mushrooms. It's very easily done. But they'd have to import the ritual from America or something. I think they have to develop their own. I think the, the, the way to do it, um, at least the way that the um, ayahuasca, ayahuasca church uh, person that we met suggested, as the way, the way this ayahuasca cult happened in the Amazon was first somebody took it um, and Our Lady appeared to him in the form of Our Lady of the Forest and told him to go into the jungle for seven days living only on roots and berries and so forth alone and at the end to take a large amount of this substance, the ayahuasca then she appeared to him again as Our Lady of the Forest and revealed the outlines of this ritual and its essential forms these things have to be channeled, they have to grow through a channeling type experience, they have to be revealed rather than invented and so I think that say a mushroom cult were to grow up in England it would have to happen spontaneously under the guidance of the uh, after a suitable prayer I don't know who would be the essential the great patron of it I and mean, Glastonbury would probably be one of its sacred centers um, but it would have to be revealed the details of it I think well there is a tradition I guess only not continuous because it became extinct is that right so the rediscovery of the druidic rites or something could provide the model I think that it would have to be the thing is the druidic rites are too far lost to be revived and there was this 19th century based attempt to revive the druidic rites and there are druidic orders in England there are quite a lot of them they all quarrel with each other and there's a plethora of these druids but mostly they've taken their doctrines from theosophists and reading esoteric books and so on it's a kind of melange of, of western esoteric knowledge that doesn't really have mm -hmm. to me at any rate any convincing continuity with the mysteries of the Druidic past. So in a sense the tradition is lost and it's hard to see how it could be recovered without it being a rather theatrical reinvention. 
Well, except the, you know, if, you, if you look how the Mexican mushroom religion does it, it's very logical. I mean, that's the way to do it. You do it in small circles at night with intentionality. There's song, there's prayer, there's silence. It's not a leap of imaginative vision to conceive of one of these ceremonies. No, it's very easy to conceive of them, but to have, to, for them to have a kind of authenticity in the eyes of those who participate in them, they have to have been revealed rather than invented. Well, they are psychedelic experiences. The authenticity is going to come from the thing itself. We're not talking here about reciting mantras. This is the real thing, you know. I know, but the thing is that the ceremony, I think, would need to be rooted in the spirit of the place and that sort of thing. There would have to be certain ritual elements for it to function rather than to be rooted in the, in the spirit of the place and to be part of a larger movement such as we're talking of, namely um, you know, a green order, which mm -hmm. would be the kind of mystical branch of, of a larger green movement. Well, you see, what I'm trying to do in my book is argue that the mushroom was the ur-symbiote of humanity, and that thus all human beings in all times and places can actually claim it as uh, their... So there's a gigantic creod. Yes. It should be possible to excavate it from any time at any place in the future. Mm. That was the religion of human beings for the first million years and it underwent uh, a diminishing 10,000 years ago. And so the creod is in the vast. In the, yes. When the desertification of Africa it was broken up as recently as seven or 8,000 years ago, there were probably still intermittent mushroom ceremonies when it climatically was favored to appear. Mm. But... I really see it as a restoration of this lost symbiotic partner. So it isn't even ultimately a matter of the psychedelic experience per se. It's that psilocybin has some unique relationship to the evolution of the human nervous system. It in fact turns the human nervous system into an antenna to the Gaian mind. And then people behave appropriately in the same way that termites behave appropriately when within the morphogenetic field of the termite nest. But uh, if this antenna is not present in the human being, then the human being has to think up their own program, and it's usually power-crazed, lethal, short-sighted, and uh, grabby. But if that's the case, do we know that um, the, the mushroom cults that have sprung up, for example, in the northwest of the United States, have these led to, um, I mean, is your impression of the people who belong to them that these are people of a, an entirely different quality from those who don't belong to such groups and that they're appropriate and in tune with the gun mind? Oh, yes, they tend to be rural, they tend to be communal, they tend to be uh, non-motivated in the economic realm. In other words, they are living simply uh, voluntary simplicity is a concept they're well familiar with. They have and value their children. Uh, they're exemplifying the values that peasantry has always exemplified because they live near the land. You know, They want for nothing, but they have very little. That's my impression. They haven't a plan to take over the Christian churches. No, they are beyond it. They are in the thrall of their religious relationship to the mushroom. The save the earth part is sort of the political agenda. But they're going to be absorbed by this political program sooner or later as the acid rain destroys their mushrooms. Yes, well, I think they're more and more alarmed. My audiences, until very recently, preferred me to dwell on the mystical, the transhistorical. They loved that. And about a year and a half ago, people started questioning why there was no political content. Now they demand political content. There is definitely a shift on to make whatever your position is relevant to the uh, 
encroaching crisis which everyone feels. I mean, we may imagine because we're intellectuals and because we deal with this data that it's more on our minds, but the housewife doing her ironing, the school child on the bus, people worry about the fate of the earth because the, the uh, collective information field has now shifted its attention to this. The only, compete, com, the only competition for that focus on the need to save the earth is this stupid anti-drug thing, which is, you know, the need to preserve the purity of your precious bodily essences or something like that. And in a way, the two are opposed. It's an issue of how we relate to uh, the vegetable matrix. Yes, well, there we see the, the forces in opposition to the recyclization program um, gathering and arming themselves. Yes, in their usual fashion. But you see, I think the psychedelic order is only one aspect of the recyclization program. The other one, as I suggested the other day, is, is a revival of pilgrimage and sense of sacred time. And this can be done in, in many contexts and it can be easily incorporated into people's lives. And moreover, I find that it immediately makes sense to most people. I mean, most people, you say, you know, that the quality of time, certain times are better, and to be conscious of these and to the kind of historical fields attached to them is better than to be unconscious of them. I mean, most people can see that and they say, of course. And the same with sacred places. Most people can see that the reason why pilgrims and tourists go to these places is because of some quality of the place which is special. And so do you relate to the quality of the space consciously and ask the spirit of the place to inform and illuminate you on your visit there and give you its blessing? Or do you treat it unconsciously and say, well, people thought that way in the past, but now we're scientific, we've risen above all that, that's just superstition, but we're interested in coming to this place anyway for historical or archaeological reasons and taking photographs of it and going home. But without opening oneself to the spirit of the place, it wants relation to it being one of attraction to it and yet an unconscious barrier between one. Now, if one puts it like that, I think most people can see that because most people really are going to sacred places and really are going to the wilderness and so on because of a desire to make some such connection. It's part of the romantic, private, subjective tradition of our culture. Um, but I think that making it explicit and pointing it out and, and showing how, in simple ways how pilgrimage can be re revived. I mean, simple principles like going with an intention, taking some offering, if possible, circumambulating the place to make it the cosmic center before entering it, and simple uh, principles of that kind. Um, it's fairly easy to re-sacralize tourism, and that's something which is immediately available on, as a mass movement, and through the impetus of the green movement, I think could be uh, spread very rapidly. Well, I think we've arrived at a, we arrived? a certain vision, um, characterized by, to me, surprising optimism, um, about the possible outcome of this program involving the green, the secularization, the psychedelic orders, and the successful escape of the downward spiral up the down staircase. We're talking about up the down staircase. And the way uh, it's emerged in our trialogue, uh, I think it sounds fairly, fairly plausible that it's possible and it's underway. I'm We've sorry, got a summary. I haven't haven't the energy to summarize this because every time I try to summarize it, you've added something further. I think it's so, in good shape unless you feel a summary coming on, and I'll just shut up. Well, a diagram. Ralph has this great <laughs> to turn everything into diagrams. Yes. Well, we we, we have a, a diagram in mind. Definitely, we have uh, through poking around rediscovered the basic institutions of civilization the religious, the political, or the state, and, and uh, the relationship to the earth. And, uh, and then we've proposed a revitalization of each of these areas and found them already underway. And then we've seen that the connection of these uh, root revolutionary 
movements needed needs to be provided as a kind of a matrix between them, which would then integrate them into kind of a new social form with a chance of having a future. And this intracellular matrix between the roots could grow by evolution from a kind of a nucleation event. And um, so we've, we've pinpointed something that actually we, we could do to provide this nucleation, and that would be a, uh, a pilgrimage involving some small number of people from the green political movement and others from the new religious movements, for example, the uh, councils of ayahuasca and peyote cults in the Americas, to give them a joint experience uh, sharing the, uh, the spirit of the field of a traditional sacred place, particularly of the, the oldest uh, roots of Western civilization. I don't know if we will actually do this, but we have at least dreamed up something we could do that has the potential of have a lot of bang for the buck in terms of uh, giving people our idea for a new society. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as the saying goes, a lot of water has passed under the bridge since Ralph's optimistic summation of ways to bring the sacred back into human civilization. I guess on one hand, you could say that not much has changed, at least on the surface. But behind the scenes, at least in the psychedelic community, I can say that my personal experience has been to see many of my friends move from using psychedelic substances primarily for pleasure into more of a mystical dimension, which really isn't very surprising to anyone who has personally experienced these gratuitous graces. So maybe the recyclarization of the world is actually taking place, just like the trialoguers were hoping for. I guess my main criticism of this thread of their conversation stems from the fact that, for the most part, they were speaking from a Judeo-Christian perspective. Although Rupert did try to interject the Muslim side on a few occasions, for the most part they weren't able to also touch on the forms of Buddhism, Hinduism, and the wide varieties of religious experience available throughout the Far East. And it's not a criticism, actually. You know, after all, they were covering a huge topic in just 90 minutes. And I'm mentioning this mainly because I know we have a large number of fellow psychonauts in that part of the world who also join us here in the Psychedelic Salon each week. And I don't want you to think that your point of view doesn't matter. It does. Unfortunately, us Westerners sometimes get so carried away with ourselves that we forget that we're only one small part of the human experience. And I have to admit that I, I had to smile when, <laughs> when Terence kept talking about saving the earth. Now, while that expression was quite popular during the last century, it's become kind of funny now, don't you think? I can see talking about saving our species, and to be honest, I'm not sure we're going to even make it as a species as long as most mammal species have survived so far. But I'm pretty sure that no matter what us humans do, the Earth is going to continue along just fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with talking about saving the planet, but unless and until we humans can get along with one another and with the biosphere, saving ourselves seems to be where the focus should be. And speaking of focus, I'd better come clean here and admit that my focus on replying to your email has really fallen by the wayside lately. I seem to go in spurts where for a few days I'll answer email as soon as it comes in, but then I'll start putting it off for a day or so until eventually my inbox gets so full I realize I'll probably never catch up. But uh, this kind of procrastination isn't anything new for me. <laughs> you know, on my last assignment in the Navy, uh, I was the executive officer on a ship, which meant, among other things, that I was responsible for the smooth flow of the mountains of mainly unnecessary paperwork that bureaucracies seem to thrive on. I can remember one program that the uh, screwheads at the top of our system implemented, and it was supposedly intended to reduce the number of reports a ship was required to submit. 
But what really amazed me about this program was that the morons who came up with the idea required us to submit weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual reports detailing how we eliminated the unnecessary busy work of filing stupid reports. <laughs> so, as you can probably guess, my first weekly report was to announce that I'd eliminated all of the reports about reducing paperwork. For the first few months after refusing to send any more of those stupid forms into them, I was getting all kinds of threatening messages telling me that I was way behind in reporting on my paperwork problems. But after a while, I guess they just got tired of bugging me and I stopped hearing from them. So I expanded that idea and didn't turn in any reports for a few months. And it turned out that there were actually a few uh, people who seemed to really need the information that I uh, was supposed to be reporting on. So I wound up doing about 10% of the required paperwork because uh, they were essentially very squeaky wheels. I guess this is just a long way of saying that I'm still not very good at paperwork, even the digital kind. It's rude of me, I know, particularly because I so enjoy receiving your emails. So, for what it's worth, if you haven't yet received a reply to an email you sent me, well, I want you to know that it really bothers me that I don't keep up with my email, and I even lose sleep about it at night as I lay there and compose responses to the many thoughtful messages you've been sending. And I promise to do better in my next life. Well, I'm just rambling now, I guess, so I'd better close and let you get on with your lives. Hey, it's been nice to be with you again, though, and uh, thank you all for listening. Before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And if you still have questions, send them to me in an email. It's lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. Thanks, as always, to Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk for letting us use your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 